I think that people oftentimes don't feel connected to our heart and they feel like they're just connected to our brain. We're connected to our thoughts and, and that's how we sort of should navigate life is through our thinking. But if we all start to drop down, just like your podcast from the heart and start thinking about how we want to live from the heart, then everything kind of makes a lot more sense and that we're navigating ourselves and who we want to become and how we want to connect with people in such a different way. Because of the pandemic, mental health has now become a topic that is now being addressed more than ever before. Mental health is defined by the World Health Organization as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease. Additionally, it is also a person's condition with regard to their psychological and emotional well-being. Today, we have the pleasure of having Susan Zinn, who is an LPCC LMHC, and a licensed psychotherapist specializing in integrative psychotherapy for adolescents and adults. She is passionate about working with people who want more out of their life and provides a welcoming therapeutic environment for people seeking to make lasting positive changes through individual, family, and group psychotherapy. She has been featured in Forbes Magazine, Science Times, and New York Post. Hey everyone, this is Helene, and this is coming from my heart. Each day, all of us need to take some moments to meditate, walk, bike, sing, dance, or just become silent in your safe space. Being grateful and having gratitude for your breath and so much for the others around you. As we end the month of April, we're gearing up for our mental health month, which is of course in the month of May. As mentioned before, we'll be having a mental health collaboration with Humble You Media, Positive Vibes Magazine, and Robin Stoloff of Living Well with Robin, a local TV and radio host. Each of the podcasts will have some amazing guests and a variety of discussions connecting to the mental health component. Also wanted to mention to please get vaccinated. Watching Biden's first joint address to Congress last night where he mentioned that 220 million vaccines have been distributed. I just felt amazed and so grateful for that. So please, if you haven't been vaccinated, please go out and do so. We of course need herd immunity. My family is getting the second vac shortly. So of course, you know, take the time, go get your selfie and be happy that you live in the United States and can get this done. Because so many countries are lagging behind us so just be fortunate that you can actually get this vaccine. Please make sure you check out our Instagram Live next Tuesday, May 4th. We'll be doing a collaboration with Cora, Walk with Dignity, and recapping the sexual assault episode. Before we get to Susan, I'd like to mention a quote from Maya Angelou. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. I want all of you to have an amazing weekend and definitely take time for yourself. XOXO, Helene. How you doing, Susie? Is it Susie, Susan? What do you like? Well, my friends call me Susie, so I think we are friends now. So okay. Susan well, is my professional name, but okay. you can, of course, call me Susie. Well, hi, and welcome to our podcast. We are so excited to have you. I know that we connected through our buddy, AJ, and all I can say is, you know, having this little pre-conversation and has spoken to you before, I'm super psyched just to chat and just talk about lots of things in life and your practice and your journey. So I will let you take it away a little bit and just start talking a little bit about your background to our Coming From The Heart listeners. Sure. So I am a licensed psychotherapist and I'm a certified trauma and eating disorder specialist in Los Angeles, California. I also do a lot of consulting with different companies and really where I feel like my, my life mission and my purpose is really just helping people not only survive and thrive in life, but just live a really joyful life. And I think oftentimes as a trauma therapist, we kind of get the bad rap of thinking that everything has to be so serious. And, you know, the topics that we do talk about are super serious, but 
I think that really my goal is just allowing my patients and the people that I work with to say, I can have more than just sort of surviving and white knuckling it through life. I'm also a mom of two teenagers. I have a high performance tennis player and I have two dogs. One is a service dog in training, but she is just this huge ball of delight. She's about seven months old. And that's just a little bit about me. All right. Well, first of all, let's talk about the dogs. Okay. So yeah, I want to hear about your, of course, <laughs> your amazing background. And if Alexandra was here, yeah, we'd be like, okay, yes, amazing <laughs> certifications, but let's talk about the dog for a moment. So to be silly here, um, the dog is, what type of dog is service dog? Did you say? Yeah, so I actually have another, I have another service dog that he, we worked in New York city together through the good dog foundation, which okay. is this amazing organization that works with uh, pet therapy, but with all different types of organizations. So working with an elderly population to the DAs for crime victims unit to, I worked in foster care facility. Um, and really the lessons that I learned so much from animal and animal therapy is is just the fact of the healing power that they have. So the fact of what this little guy could do for these kids who really just had such a tough upbringing and had so much trauma in their lives was way more than I ever had the capacity to. So he's retired now. And then now I have this new pup. Her name is Phoebe, named after Phoebe from Friends because she is exactly like that. She's the biggest goofball. And um, she's just such a delight. So she is learning slowly, but she definitely keeps us busy and she just loves hard the entire world. So she's oh really Oh my God. Well, you know, I, it's so interesting that you said specifically about animals. And now I know how you connect to AJ in many ways because it's <laughs> all about the animal and the farm. So, hey, hey AJ, a shout yes. out to you for a moment. But yeah, so animals are incredible. And I think for my, or, you know, our family, after my mom passed away, is when we got our dog. And, you know, if my mother would be here, she would have been like, oh, great, you replaced me with the dog. But kind of sort of, yeah, in a way, because we were in such a loss of her loss that Cooper, who's our little mm -hmm. guy, although he thinks he's a Doberman by, you know, I think innately he was some watchdog and he, you know, we are his pack. And, and actually it's funny, he's not here today. I'm kind of missing him during the recording because he just sort of sits in the corner, but they do give this presence of love and strength and just you know for people who have gone through trauma just to mention that of course obviously that's your background and that's pretty much what you do as your profession yeah you want to you know speak a little bit more of that and how that works for people going through certain things in their life I, I yes I think that animals just have this incredible healing power for people and sometimes people have a hard time communicating their feelings or emotions or they have a hard time connecting with other people and dogs are unconditional. You don't have to do anything except sort of show up and all they want to do is make you happy and delight in that. And there's also sort of contact. We, we forget about the importance of sort of contact. I have a rule in my house of seven points of contact a day. So hugs are big in my house and kissing's big in my house. But I think for a lot of people who are really isolated, having a pet that you can always hug or touch just really helps to regulate the nervous system. And I'm a huge believer that everyone should have pets, whether it's cats, dogs, chickens. I mean, with AJ, he has the whole <laughs> 30 animals yeah. and a farm, but you yeah. know, just even spending time with animals and just what you can learn from them, from horses, cows, whatever it may be. Um, but uh, it's it, there's such this incredible gift to us to really help us regulate our nervous systems and to feel love and to feel what it feels like to feel love as well too, which is really important. Wow. Yeah, I, I really love what you said. I want to circle back to the part about your nervous system, because I know specifically, you know, referencing, of course, as a person who deals with trauma, and I want to get a little bit into specific of the type of patients that you deal with. But the touch, you mentioned the touch that so many situations where people have gone through horrible trauma, they don't want someone to touch them. If you just mm -hmm. want to comment on that. Yes, I think that when we've either been harmed by someone, in which case touch feels scary, and or that we are so in ourselves dealing with our own trauma, our own hurt, that we having that presence of someone else from being in contact with us is very difficult. It could even feel jarring. 
it can sort of feel like a cold plunge. All of a sudden there becomes a shock to the nervous system when we actually have contact with another person because we're so in our own world of our own feelings or in our own emotions. And so I think it's oftentimes really important if you know that someone's been a sexual assault survivor or they've had some major trauma in their lives to really go slow, always asking permission, how far to lean in. But I have a rule a lot of times with clients of mine that have been struggling with depression is that they become the person that actually is the hugger, that they sort of reach out to other people in order to have that contact, in order to allow them to be more present because we get all these great feel good chemicals going in our body when we do have that contact. And so I think during this pandemic, that's been one of the hardest things for people is just the lack of contact and the lack of connection with people, which just creates all these stress hormones in our stress hormones in our body, which really is super challenging for people. And I'm hearing so many people really struggling with anxiety and depression as a result of the lack of contact and contact and, and being around people is what makes us human. We want to connect with one another. So that's really the importance yes. of touch yeah. and how everyone has to really remember that. Sure. No, of course. And I absolutely, I'm so interested about like how you just said it and what you just said, specifically referencing to our coming from the heart family. If there's anyone out there, like so many of us who have been living this alternative world during COVID, I think about my own children. I think about Alexandra, you know, at not being at her school, which is Rutgers, not having, you know, we've talked about it on other podcasts as well, not having your day to day, not, not being near people. And the actual touch part of it is so, so important and people are just not getting it. So what would you suggest if a person's in a situation and it's COVID and they're not sure how to go about getting a therapist or they can't afford to get a therapist or they don't know how to go about these situ this situation to give themselves more contact? Like, what do they do? What can you do? The really interesting thing about the way our brain and our body works is number one is that we can give contact to ourselves. And like we were talking about a dog, but there is something that you can do by simply, it's called a havening touch by simply putting your, running your hands down your arms and allowing yourself to, to sort of feel soothed and that. And if you can imagine someone giving you a hug, that can really help in the brain start to, to give us some of those neurochemicals that we talked about that actually start to stimulate and make us feel better. The other part, and I know that sounds silly and it's just a little small tool. It doesn't make everything better, but it just means that we're, we're, we're doing something for our body to sort of change what's going on for us mentally. Okay. The other thing we can do is really about affirming our feelings. And so even if you're distant from someone and you can't be in contact with them, really telling people how you feel actually gives us the same chemicals in our body as if we're actually being touched or held. So I think that during this time period, what people have gotten really good about is communicating feelings mm -hmm. and telling people who are important to them and they're feeling closer and more connected, even if they don't have the physical proximity. But I think that that longing and the care and the important people in their lives that they're really, really communicating that to right now is so important. Um, but I do think that there's a shift starting to happen as things are opening up and people are adjusting to the fact that they can start touching people again. And that also feels scary and uncertain in our nervous systems because it's new. and We haven't been doing that for a year. Exactly. And that was, yeah, that was my point right now is that you're going from this complete isolation situation. Of course, if you have your immediate family around you and if you're lucky you have extended or you have this close pack of friends, I think some in their twenties or so forth, you know, post-college or even in college, they kind of decided to hibernate or be together. So they have their pack as I reference it. So they have these people that they um, have been safe with, you know, during the COVID moments. But then, as you just said, post COVID, I mean, I know for myself, I mean, Alexandra and I've mentioned it. My son has mentioned it. My husband, you go out there. I mean, yes, there's been a lot of people that have been maybe not the safest and are not wearing their masks. So we, we're not going to talk about them. You know who I mean? Okay. Yeah. We're going to talk about the people that have been careful and that are concerned about others. And now all of a sudden you're, you're vaccinated or you're in the process of getting vaccinated, or maybe you have one vaccine and you are in public. It's weird. It's a weird feeling. I know for myself as well. I mean, I went, as, I, you know, prior to doing this podcast, I went through as my coming from the heart listeners know during vertigo. And I was sort of like, 
sort of in a similar situation where I really wasn't going out and I was pushing myself to be out more in public because it felt scary to be interfacing with other people. So I kind of knew what it felt like a little bit before COVID. So if you want to comment on that. Sure. I think that what you're talking about is really important and it's sort of the pod concept. So we sort of all potted up with people that were similar to us. They were either family members or there were people that we had similar lifestyles or cultural references or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden you are going out and you're speaking to people that are strangers or they're people that are different. You don't know your grocery store person or your, your drag cleaner or the gas person. And you're sort of interacting with people very differently. And our brain is scanning for danger and it's sort of going, wait, is this person safe? Is this person safe? Is this person safe all over the place? Because we've been in sort of this little myopic world for the past year of maybe seeing a handful of people. I think there's probably not a lot of people that have seen hundreds of people. They've probably seen handfuls of people. And so our brains are starting to look for the tigers. They're looking for the danger. They're looking for things that feel uncertain. And our brain is always going to do that in order to keep us safe because it doesn't care if we're happy. It just cares if we're alive. So our nervous system is just going to be activated until we can start to normalize that the person at the grocery store is a friend and someone that we see all the time. And that feels familiar again. And we get back into these routines and structures because our body loves structure and it loves routines and it loves to know what to anticipate. And that also means who's in our tribe. So it's this 2 million year old part of our brain that's sort of running our lives and how we feel in our nervous system is how we feel in our lives. And unfortunately right now, there's gonna be a big adjustment for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the neurotransmitters for a minute. I know Alexandra would love this part because she's my science person. <laughs> you know, for, for coming from the heart family out there and listeners, who's someone who just, you know, doesn't really understand exactly what that means. Break it down a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, I think it's what's wires together, fires together. And I like to think about the brain as actually like a record groove. And so oftentimes what happens is that we develop patterns and routines in life and, and, and we kind of get to these scratches that happen. And so we go back to those defaults all the time. And so when we actually are learning new skills or new behaviors, we actually start to create these new scratches, but that takes habits and that takes routine and that takes structure and that takes intention. And so when people are talking about affirmations or they're talking about intention, we really have to work hard at kind of creating those new neural networks. Mm -hmm. And so that is, but the cool thing about it is that we can do it. We have, our brain has this amazing capacity to grow and to change, but we have to actually decide how we want to do it. So I think that that's also really important for people to know is that after 25 years old, when we all hear that our brains start to change and it's a lot harder to learn new skills. That's not true. We just have to be more intentional and in how we learn is actually through error. And so the more times we fail or we create errors, then we're going to create new change as well too. Interesting. So in essence, it's, it's a positive to fail, even though people may not see that. Absolutely. I think the more that we fail, the more that we learn. And I always, for parents, I always say up until 25 years old with your children, have them learn and fail as many things as possible. And then also have things that they really excel at. Mm -hmm. But the more that they can do that, the more resilience that they're building and the more flexibility that they're learning and which is going to make them just happier and healthier people versus if, if they only kind of know certain things very well, then when new obstacles or challenges come at them in their lives, they're going to have a much more difficult time to sort of navigate and figure out how to kind of either learn those things or want to learn or feel like they have the agency or control or feel like they have the motivation to even do that too. Okay. So the, the more that we fail, the more that we actually can just, we, we're just happier people. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I always feel or felt in my own personal life and my kids as well, failing, even though it's traumatic and it's horrible and trauma you might be going through is tough, but there's so much to learn. You may not be thinking of, a, of it, excuse me, at that moment. And it's hard to explain that to a child or your, or your children because you, you know, because you're older and you have that schema to like, okay, this, is, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. But for people that are so stuck in it, it's really, really, really difficult for them to see that. So two things I'm thinking about with this is 
a helicopter parent. Of course, we know what that means. You know, someone who's just honing in on the kid. Uh, you know, I taught elementary school. There was many of those situations. I personally was not like that. I tried to give my kids autonomy, but with support, you know, go out there, but I'm supporting you. You have to fail. You have to do, you know, you're at the end of the day, you come into the world yourself and you leave yourself. I love you, that. You know, thank you. And <laughs> thank you. And that's kind of been my mantra for the last few weeks about a lot of things I'm thinking about and dealing with. But like, you have to figure, excuse me, shit out on your own. Like if someone is going to be holding your hand the whole way and, and, and giving you that, you're never going to be able to stand alone. You're never going to be able to deal with life and life is crappy and it's messy. And our listeners out there know that. And if it's, you know, we'll get through COVID at some point and then, you know, moving on to other things in your life. So yeah. What do you think of that? <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. But, you know, I think that you're bringing up so many great points is that we really all need to decide it's, there's a Mary, I'll go back to, there was a Mary Oliver quote that she said, what are you going to do with your one precious life? And I think that that's the question that we all have to ask. And even from younger ages, if we're teaching our children the agency and control for them to actually decide what kind of life do they want to live, that we have the full capacity to decide what that's going to be. And so when we think about it from a biology perspective, 40% of our happiness or our life satisfaction comes from genetics, but 60% comes from our own choices and decisions that we're going to make in life. And so how are we going to proceed in life and what are we going to do in order to live out the lives that we want to do or we want to live and how we want to live? And the same thing with, with parents is that if we're doing it for them and we're living their lives for them and we're making choices and decisions for them that we think are the best for them, they don't actually ever become their own person. And they don't become who they're supposed to be, which is separate from us. Our arms are not their arms. Our legs are not their legs. And so the more space we can give them by just standing still and watching, observing as they're making decisions and they're failing and they have the bloody knees and they're getting back up again, that's actually really good parenting because while they're underneath our, our, our households, they're struggling and practicing, but they know that we're there if they really make a mistake and they really stumble, we're going to be there to hold their hand and get them back up. Oh, no, absolutely. I agree with so much of that. And what would be your suggestion for children? Yes, shall I, shall I reference this? Not younger children. Let's say in the 20s, where that becomes a little bit sticky, where, again, with COVID, so many situations of kids had to move back home. They're living under their parents' house. It's, it's a toxicity of an environment and all that. That's been a huge problem, of course, during COVID. How does that young 20-year-old have that autonomy? They're back in their, their parents' house. They're back in that, you know, that environment to, to thrive. How do they thrive? Yeah. I think that there's opportunities always to learn. And I think that Oftentimes, if you can tolerate and you can manage sort of being back into environments where you are triggered to your younger parts, where you are a little kid and your parents and everyone has these roles, but for them to actually start to separate out their younger parts from actually being 20 something and practice new skills and behaviors, because sometimes our 20 somethings are going to actually teach the parents a lot about self-regulation, about confidence about agency about control in their lives and about who they want to become and so this is an opportunity for them if it's a healthy household i'm not saying if there's a toxic household or there's abuse or addiction or things that become scary this is we're in a different we're in a safety category here but if they're actually in a household where they're just growing as humans and they're trying to practice that I think there's a real opportunity for them to really think about, well, who am I separate from my parents and really having that reflection because they're probably never going to have this time again to be back at home with their parents and actually really exploring their differentness and their separation and what values they really hold true or what are their needs and wants and desires, which may be very separate from their parents. So I think this is just a beautiful opportunity for them to really struggle and sort of grow through and grow up 
into the people that they want to become. And believe me, life is always a journey and they're always going to be growing. But I do think that there's a real opportunity for them to, to thrive and to grow in this environment. And even no matter how uncomfortable it's going to be and how painful it's going to be. And I get that physically that can be really painful, but if they use it as a right opportunity, it can be really an incredible thing for them. Yeah. I like the positive aspect of it. Cause I think that maybe even for myself as well in situations that I know of and so forth, where it's a, or has been a negativity where it could be a supporting positiveness, but it has to be spun in that direction, you know, for that to actually happen. And it's, if, if it can happen, you know, yeah, very, very interesting thoughts. What I want to change gears here for a moment. And just, I was thinking as you were speaking about a few different things here, how would you define in many of your patients that you see, for an example, you deal with young teenagers, young adults, families with specific challenges and so forth. How would you define emotional pain? I mean, that's really a pretty big one I'm throwing at you here because emotional pain and I think that, you know, what I'm also trying to get to is mental health awareness, which we, of course, been talking so much about, which has really come to light, or shall I say, has popped. I like to use that word popped because it's it's always been around. It's been there. Of course, COVID has magnified it, put it under the light that these situations are really, really happening. Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. I know therapists are probably extremely busy at this time frame or have been quite busy with so many people who've never felt like they've had a situation of mental health issues and now want to talk about it. But going back to what my, you know, my question or my thought is, how do you, how do you define that? Because it means something so different to so many. It's such a great question. And I also, I love that you're bringing up the importance of mental health awareness. I think during this time period, so many frontline workers, we were just trying to get everyone through this time as best as we could. The mental health community really kind of put our arms around and we worked really, really hard. I think most of my colleagues, we probably worked seven days a week for, you know, for an entire year. And then during this time period, while things are starting to transition, we were hoping that the air was coming out of the balloon a little bit, but what we actually are seeing is actually the balloon is getting more and more inflated and I'm actually concerned it's going to burst. So we were having a mental health crisis prior and now there's a lot of people really struggling and you brought up some of the important points of why they're struggling and sort of the reintegration into communities and having to look at things or food and uncertainties or job losses or marriages blowing up or addiction or there, we can go on and on of the things that people are really struggling with right now. So I think that when you're talking about this great question about emotional awareness is that the fact is, is that our heart actually beats before our brain. And so the fact is, is that our heart is drives everything in our lives. It drives how we think, it drives how we feel, it drives how we feel when we wake up in the morning. But it's important to know that we are all how are that it, it that it feels too. It has emotions and it has senses. And so and so that I think that we get so caught up in how we should we think versus actually how we feel. And so when we talk about our emotions, it's the same thing as getting cut, or it's the same thing as a broken bone. And that emotional pain can be so overwhelming for so many people. And the pain that they actually feel in their heart can be so overwhelming that it's difficult for them to navigate through life. And then it's communicating to their brain I don't feel good, or this doesn't feel great, or I don't want to do this, or it sort of interrupts everything. And so it's just so important for us to really put our arms around and pay attention to not only emotional pain, but how what we can do for to be preventative and what we can do to support people that are struggling through pain. Interesting. Right. Do you feel that emotional pain is physical pain? A hundred percent. I mean, our heart feels. And I think it's, if we just start to think that that's just a concept or that's an idea, you've probably had heartbreak in your life and your daughter I'm sure has too. And you felt a physical pain from that. 
And so when people are struggling, they feel a physical pain. You can see their body, their, their shoulders get kind of slunched over, or they have a difficult time with eye contact, or they'll feel something in their hips. You know, trauma survivors will always talk about that. And as a somatic therapist, I often say, well, where does that feeling come? Where, where, where is that feeling in your body? Where is that manifesting? Where is that, where is that pain? And oftentimes it's either associated with a, a memory or that's where our body stores the pain, the emotional pain that we feel from the hurt that we've, we've struggled with. And some people it's in our, in our brains, some people it's going to be in our back. Some people it's going to be in our hips. Some people it's going to be in our hands, whatever it may be, but we're all unique and different and we're going to hold pain differently, but it's important for us to really pay attention to where it's coming up in the body in order to heal. Okay. Interesting with that. Yeah. Getting back to the heart for the, our listeners out there. So of course, okay, we know our heart beats, obviously that's how you're breathing and so forth, but the pain that you're feeling, explain that. Cause I'm not explaining it well, meaning. Sure. It, yeah. So really what happens with our heart is that people think it's just this muscle that just does its job and it, it beats. And then when we go for a run, it speeds up. Or if we get a sudden delight in something, or we feel in love that all of a sudden we get this sped up feeling. And also it's important to know that anxiety feels a lot like love or excitement because we both get this sort of sped up feeling in our heart. So sometimes feelings can even get a little confusing. However, we have the capacity to actually control our heartbeat, which is pretty amazing. And how we can actually do that is through our breath. So when we're actually inhaling, we're actually speeding up our heart. And when we're exhaling, we're actually slowing down our heart. And so oftentimes when people are even talking about healing practices, that's actually really important for them to understand that we can control this. But I think that people oftentimes don't feel connected to our heart and they feel like they're just connected to our brain. We're connected to our thoughts. And, and that's how we sort of should navigate life is through our thinking. But if we all start to drop down, just like your podcast from the heart and start thinking about how we want to live from the heart, then everything kind of makes a lot more sense and that we're navigating ourselves and who we want to become and how we want to connect with people in such a different way. Because the cool thing about our heart is we actually emit four feet of energy around us, which is amazing. And so people then enter into our energy fields and they feel how we feel because of what we're actually emitting outside of our skin and our chest. Wow. Okay. You said it so well. Okay. So get back to, you're good, Susie, of course. So go back to the part where I like this. I mean, I like so much of what you said. I'm trying to be more specific here about when people are in that certain field, that energy field. And we, you know, I'm, I'm talking to a friend of mine, of course, a life coach about energy and the fields of energy. And maybe our, our family out there listening in are coming from the heart really don't understand what that means. So for an example, like someone who is going through a trauma experience and there, someone else is coming in that field near, you know, obviously near their heart, obviously it wouldn't be a good feel for them. Well, I think that I would be careful with that language because okay. we've all experienced trauma. Okay. Okay. That's inevitable. We're going to experience pain in life, right? right. That is, a, that's a fact. The suffering part is what we get to decide. Okay. And so as someone who's experienced trauma, they may feel not strong. If, if they're in their healing process, they may not feel as strong as maybe someone else who's actually processed their trauma. And I always like to say, was it three years ago, you know, before you actually start to share or talk about it in public, because you do need that time to sort of really work through what's happened and right. process that and process that in your body, not just process it in our memory and our mind, the process in our body. So I think that maybe their energy field might feel a little bit hesitant or it may, they may need time to sort of get their energy up before they're actually interacting with people in a way that they want to show up. Maybe they can do it for short periods of time and then they need to go back and sort of work on their own healing. Um, so I don't think that they have a negative energy field. Okay. It just okay. may be things that we're sort of picking up about them mm -hmm. that we're conscious of. And I think that in life, we all have to remember to be really compassionate to other people 
And the micro gestures that we sort of have throughout our days, our attitude, how we greet people, how we love on people, how we notice and show up and how present we are with people, then that's going to also affect our energy fields. And so if someone's struggling, if we move into that and show compassion and kindness and really say from a heartful place of a heart to heart connection of, I feel you right now. Are you okay? Are you really okay? Not just asking, are you okay? Then that can actually change so much. And that gesture can be such a healing tool for other people because they feel really seen. And that's what we all want as human beings is to feel seen. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that was my next thought too. Of course, you said it very well. Yeah. About the energy fields. And I think what I was trying to say, just to reiterate, is that it may not even have to be so negative. It depends on the situation and that person's connection to that other person. You know, if they're, if they're closer to that person, they may feel maybe an embracement. If they're, if they've had a conflict with that person, maybe it would be not the best of feel for them. And also, you know, you mentioned about people being compassionate to that person going through whatever that trauma may have been. Trauma doesn't also, I just wanted to like, you know, clarify, and maybe you'll clarify as well. Trauma could be lasting a few days or a few months. I mean, when you define trauma, you know, you know, I think when I used to think about trauma, it'd be like, oh my God, it, it's someone who's gone through trauma. It must be years of that. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, right? A, a trauma experience could be uh, for a week or, you know, a month. If you want to just comment on that. Sure. So a trauma is really whenever there's been an event and that event sort of has impacted our senses because how a trauma gets stored in our nervous system is through our senses. So there was a smell, we heard something, we touched something there, whatever it may be, there is something that impacted in our senses in some way. And people think that that word means that it has to be catastrophic. And believe me, I've worked with plenty of people that have had catastrophic things happen to them in their lives as well as myself. But there is all of these sort of moments in life that even today I spoke to someone and she was worried and concerned that she didn't do a good enough job. And her sense of worth was really in question of, am I good enough? Did I do a good enough job? Do I feel good enough? Do I feel worthy enough? And that can feel really traumatic for someone. And that can really feel quite upsetting because they get triggered back to maybe these younger parts when they didn't feel enough in certain ways. And so it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be COVID for people to sort of experience trauma. And the fact is, is our bodies also don't know the difference between something catastrophic and something small about just feeling not worthy or not feeling enough. And those things feel exactly the same in our nervous systems and our bodies. And so we have to get out of sort of these definitions that someone's trauma is so much more significant and important than the next, because I can guarantee that they feel exactly the same, no matter what they are and their own personal experience. So when you were talking about emotional pain, that emotional pain manifests exactly the same, no matter what we're going through. So just honoring that and being aware and having compassionate to people, whatever they're going through, because it's still painful for them, no matter how you're going to define it as being more important or bigger or less. Yeah, I agree with everything, of course, that you were saying, too, because trauma, you know, as I was doing my own work with my own, you know, life coach was talking about trauma is trauma is trauma, meaning your brain doesn't know like it could be catastrophic or it could not be catastrophic. It's still the same situation that you're feeling or dealing with. And often if it's, if you don't work through that, whatever that trauma, whether it's really big or really small, and of course your comments, I would love that on that. Um, it, it manifests, right? It, it sure. just like bubbles down. And eventually at one point it could just explode. And I yeah. think that you brought bringing back to the whole energy that you were discussing before about people having maybe an energy that's not in congruence with you. Mm -hmm. is sometimes what can happen is that people actually start to be very pressured and they haven't processed their trauma. And then the more and more they're speaking about it. And, and I think it's really important for people to be aware of what's going on with themselves when other people are talking about their situations or their trauma, because we can be really triggered by that. It could be things that we're not ready to hear yet, or it clicks into something within our senses of what things that have happened to, to ourselves. So even just about last week, when you were doing this beautiful seminar on sexual assault survivors and how 
wonderful that you put this really safe container of kind of bubble wrap around it that everyone felt really safe. It's so important for us to really be aware of what we're saying and how we're saying and the impact that it has on other people. And if, if you are feeling that you're kind of getting pressured and you're needing to tell your story and you're repeating the same thing over and over again, that's really when you need to get professional help and to work with someone who can handle the information that you're going to share versus actually kind of that energy being spewed on other people, which could be really harmful. And vicarious traumatization is very real. Mm -hmm. I would think so. I would absolutely think so. Mm -hmm. And what I, my next thought is also to think about maybe not in the extreme of certain types of trauma situations, but let's talk about the person who's supporting the person who's gone through any type of trauma, you know, to be more compassionate. That definitely takes a toll on that other person. What would you suggest as far Absolutely. as- Absolutely. Yeah. And I think being a caretaker to anyone, no matter if it's something physical that they're going through or something mental can be really taxing because especially if you love that person that you really wanna show up and it can be really hard and also can be really frustrating. Someone who's struggling with depression and trying to help that person and being like, come on, just get out of bed today. <laughs> just, just do it. or really, are we, we here again? We, we sort of, it's hard for us to sort of hold that and sort of feel like we can have the patience when we really want our loved ones to actually be thriving and when they're struggling. And so the importance of self-care cannot be, I can't stress that enough. And we, we are, our bodies are like babies. We like our routine, we like structure. And so when you are really handling something as difficult as someone who's gone through a trauma and you're trying to really be their support system, you have to make sure that you're getting up every day and you are exercising and you are eating well and you're sleeping well and you're drinking water and you are connecting with other people and you are doing things that you find joyful and delightful in life, that you're getting all those good serotonin connections in your, in your brain that actually make you feel good and feel strong enough. Because I like the analogy, if your oxygen mask is not on and you're trying to put it on someone else, you're both going to suffocate. And so that can always be the, the barometer is the barometer, I guess it's the barometer. <laughs> if whether or not that you are actually taking care of yourself enough, because if you start to feel that those things are becoming hard and you're not doing those things, then you have to kind of take a step back and go, Hey, do I need more support to help this person? Then I'm trying to help because you're not helping them if you're actually struggling yourself. And if you're getting vicarious traumatization or you're feeling overwhelmed and you feel like you are suffocating or drowning, then you really have to say, this is time out and I need to get professional help for myself as well as helping them. And I can't do it alone. And anytime someone's going through something major in their life, you have to really think about what is the additional support that we need in order to get us through this? Because you can't do it alone. No, and I, I, I thank you so much for your comments because I think that's really references so many situations. Maybe of you know our listeners out there, a person who has an older population, an older parent, someone that they're caring for, or or and maybe even a sick person or a child or a loved one in your family where it becomes toxic, or I should say toxicity of that situation. And then there's also anger that comes out of that situation too. You as the person trying to provide and you, you're frustrated because anger is frustration, of course, with that. And also I was thinking too about back in the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about as a parent and wanting to make things better for that child, regardless of their age, you know, I think as that parent role. And sometimes you just, you can't fix it. And having that other person understand that I can't fix it, but I'll give you or get you the support. There are a lot of times there has, there may be conflict with that. What would you think of that? I think that it's, that it's really important to think about that there, there has to be space. And sometimes that as a parent, our child can't really hear what we're saying. It's, I love this this example. The other day, I was with my 16-year-old daughter and I had told her something that I thought was a really great piece of advice and she didn't want to hear me. And then someone said the exact same thing and she said, oh, my mom said that and she could hear it differently. And so when there's not the space, oftentimes kids and teenagers and 20-somethings, they can feel that they're being told what to do and how to think by a parent and they can't take that in and it feels critical it doesn't feel like it's coming from a loving place from them. And maybe it's a tone that we need to take or 
maybe it's a, a change that we need to do, or maybe they just need to sort of indi individuate and they're just not ready to take in the content or the information. But regardless of what it is, is having that space and having a person in between who's not a parent can often be tremendously helpful for someone who's struggling and really giving the support to both the parent as well as the child or the teenager or the young adult, because it's, it's, it's hard to be in a system when there's been something that happens because none, none of us want to see our children suffer or be in pain. And that as a parent, that's what we want to do most is to protect them from that. But if we're trying to protect them from that, then they're actually not living life because unfortunately it's going to happen. And the best thing that we can do is teach them the tools that they need in order to navigate when things happen that are unexpected, that are, are going to be painful or that are going to break their hearts or that are going to make them suffer. And also how to get the resources that they need in order to navigate that, that oftentimes is not going to be from us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I agree totally. I'm sorry for my long-winded comments. I'm just thinking about situations and so forth, just to put this out to give this information to our listeners. So that that's no, it's wonderful. Like, I mean, you're really sense. bringing up such incredible points and things that people are really struggling with, and yeah, they don't know quite how to navigate. And this is all coming from loving, loving and kind gestures that we're showing one another. But sometimes it can be really hard. And what we want to do most is to help. And sometimes that can be the hardest thing when someone doesn't want to receive, or they don't know how to receive, or we're too close. And so just having that space in between with a professional, I think is always so important. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So let's change our, our tune here a little bit. Let's talk about why did you want to become a therapist? Was there a specific something? And also why in this area of venue did you decide like you could have gone in other directions? Sure. It's such a great question. Okay. I actually had a whole other life prior to becoming a therapist. I worked as a, I, I did behavior studies on teenagers and young adults, and I traveled around the world and talked to thousands of teenagers about what they liked and what they wanted. And I helped build products and commercials and did all this cool stuff and really enmeshed myself into teenage life from the time I was a teenager. So I came straight out of college and I did that for a period of time. And really had such an amazing experience just meeting so many incredible young people who were changing the world and doing all these amazing things and thought leaders and had passion for life but also with that came a lot of trauma too and with the thousands and thousands of teenagers i interviewed around the world pretty much every single time i had a focus group or i had sort of an encounter with a group there was someone that was struggling in some capacity, usually it was with sexual assault or abuse in some place or ne neglect or hurt or pain. And it was pretty, a pretty powerless feeling that I had that I couldn't really help them other than just to sort of help tell their stories and be with them and having compassion for them in the moment. But I was, I was a kid myself. I didn't really know what to do. And so I started at that time, started to work with Planned Parenthood. And also I started to do some advocacy work in order to really feel like there was something that I could do because there's nothing worse than being around incredible humans that are struggling and suffering and feeling like you're powerless. And so that started on my journey of really figuring out how to help people in a different capacity. And then when 9-11 happened, that just turned my entire world upside down. <laughs> And there was really a moment coming home from after the towers had collapsed. And I just felt, I remember even that moment even now of what am I doing with my life and what's the meaning of my life and how am I helping people? And I really had to struggle with that question for a period of time. And I was in this sort of liminal space of who I wanted to become. And it was really the NYPD and the firefighters who really showed me during that time period. I spent a lot of time at Fort Pitt, which is on Pitt Street in, in lower Manhattan, which was close to my house at the time. And I pretty much would go there almost every single day and, and find some reason to sort of be around them and see how they were living their lives and how they were telling stories of their families and finding joy after they were coming out of the pile of rubble of the collapse that they had all experienced. And they would go down every single day trying to help and serve. And it really was this sort of moment that I really decided I want to take a different path in my life. And 
I couldn't go back to the life that I was living anymore. I had to kind of go forward. And that's when I decided to go back to school and to study to be a trauma therapist. And that began my entire journey. And so then I started working at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital, which is no longer anymore, which is really unfortunate, but it was this amazing community free hospital in the village. And I worked as a rape crisis counselor and, and I, that's where my, my journey started. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, 9-11, you know, I think that if anyone who's listening in was anywhere in that, in this tri-state area, and of course I was living, where was I living? I was living actually in Fort Lee. I saw the towers go down from my balcony when Alexandra was a baby and like the impact of that. And my husband was in the city and that those moments talk about trauma moments of happening to people having, you know, going through, fortunately having someone come back to them. Thank God my husband did, but so many people that didn't and that, that uncertainty, you know, and I saw it in your face as you were speaking and I, I feel and felt exactly what you were feeling as well. And the fact that you, took it upon yourself to go and volunteer and be part of that is just definitely, I guess, definitely defines who you are. Amazing <laughs> person, Susie, you, you know, you clearly are in the right place doing the right thing. And it's insane how life puts you in these places of where you belong, because, you know, the impact of what 9-11 was and continues to be for so many families out there who have lost and have tried to restructure their lives in certain ways, but of course, always having that loss or the tri-state area uh, or of having that impact. And I mean, I shouldn't just even reference tri-state, it really affected the, the world. I mean, I was not teaching my international students at that time, but every 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 country, every every person out there was affected in some capacity. You know, the damage was here, but what it what it did. Now, back to your, you know, so as you mentioned, I believe you said you were working as a a rape counselor or sexual assault counselor, or something sure. like that. So that, I guess, gave you the, the the thought process of going into this particular field of trauma. I think that it really was. I really wanted to figure out how to sort of pay it forward. And I was, I was really lucky that later on in my career, I actually got to work on curriculum to help uh, to train uh, first responders and EMTs that we developed a trauma-informed program that they actually have to take in order to be certified. And that felt really fulfilling for me to kind of pay it forward as I was sort of working and witnessing these amazing people that day in, day out were doing so much to help all of us after that tragedy. But my journey really started, yes, it started in the BER and that was sort of my first experience to, to, to think, could I even do this? Because I know for a lot of people, they're like, well, why would you wanna do that? That's so difficult and that's so hard. And for me, it's kind of the exact opposite to feel that you can hold the hand of someone who's just witnessed something so horrific in their lives and that they actually have someone there with them, even if it's a complete stranger, that gave me so much hope that they're, they were gonna be okay. This was gonna forever define them, just like those firefighters, what they see every single day on their when they are doing their job. But I, just to feel that I could be another human that was really witnessing them with them was something that just actually brought me so much hope and hope for humanity and hope for healing. And I'm forever grateful for, for that experience. It's something that I'm still super passionate about and something that I'm still committed to. But I think it's just that humanness that we all have to remember. And that sometimes something that we don't want to look at or it becomes too hard or we don't, we don't want to think about. And it is hard. And it goes back to that emotional pain. We're sitting here talking about a 9-11 and I still feel that in my heart. I can still smell that smell from that day. I can still experience that experience. But it doesn't mean that there wasn't also this incredible learning and growth and connection. And believe me, there is nothing like that moment of the connections that we felt to one another and that humanness that 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 will has forever impacted me and so many other people. As you're speaking, I'm thinking, I'm processing, I'm remembering. I see your face. I'm recollecting of that experience that I felt as well in that way. I mean, Alexandra was a baby. I wasn't out there on the front doing, but I definitely felt a sense of community 
of wherever you were going in certain areas of where I was living and so forth, where people definitely came together. And what you pointed out very eloquently is the fact of humanness, of being another human. It did matter of race, religion. I know we have so many issues with inclusivity and, 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 and things that are going on now that are so awful and terrible. But those moments of time, it was, it was so completely united. It was like the world connected its pieces and were put together. Clearly, I felt that. And I'm also happy that you mentioned about the people who were on the front, such as the police officers and the fire people and EMT and all the people that literally didn't think twice and went to help. And that is beyond selfless, you know? And I think that that was, for me, the most empowering, empowering thing to see. And I'm sure for yourself as well. The human connection. Yeah, the human connection. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Okay. So let's move on to, I guess my, my next thought is what's your spark? I, I know it's like an AJ question, but like what ignites you? I feel like AJ should be hanging with me right now. Like what gets you going? You're so selfless. You, you your job is selfless. You, you know, your family, but what like brings you something that, you know, of excitement? In your, you know, I guess I can leverage that a little bit to the heart to heart, which I'm about to get to. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I think that, believe me, I think that our happiness and our joy in life is something that we get to decide. And it's also something that takes work and we have to practice at it every single day. So I don't think that there's just one thing that sparks me. I really try to live my life that every single day that I structure and I schedule into my life in order for me to feel that delight. And I'm not even just doing a brain hack here, but I'm actually talking about living. And the fact is, if we don't actually move into that and we sort of practice that every single day, I mean, what's the, the point? I mean, we're just sort of surviving, white knuckling it for what, you know, versus we get to choose to be joyful and to delight in life and to connect and feel present and to feel love, you know, to really feel deep love. And so for me, it's every single day it changes. And I, this morning I had a, a baby bird nest outside my window that they just were peeping and it just was amazing. Or it can be I watch the sunrise in the morning and I wait for the delight that we, that wakes up the sky and that can change my entire day or, you know, seeing a friend of mine that I have a deep connection and putting my hands on their heart and feeling them playing with a puppy with my kids. Clearly um, there's so many things. It's not just one thing, but I think it's the moments in life that just sort of spark me and that changes everything for me in my day. Wow. Okay. So the heart to heart, of course, is so connected to that because obviously the heart to heart, as we were mentioning before, we we're starting to chat for the podcast here today is that moment. I mean, out of what you were explaining or, and telling, is there a, is there a specific moment where you felt we can add in the spark that that connection between another human and it could be a past experience. It could be something that happened today, yesterday, years ago, whatever you'd like. I think there's so many people that have sparked me in my life. I think that that's, it's, it's hard to sort of narrow down one, but I think if we're talking about the heart, I've shared a little bit with you that I've had three heart surgeries. And if I think back on a dear friend of mine, Dr. Kavitha Bhatia, and she was relentless about making sure that I got the support that I needed and that I was going to be okay. And so we were sort of new friends when I was sort of struggling and she forever impacted my life by just being, we're going to find a solution. We're going to figure this out. I'm in it with you. And so I think that just having someone else that really sees your struggling or your pain and wants to actually do anything that they can in order to make a difference. And she's, she's my soul sister. So I'm always so grateful and she really saved my life. And so yeah, I'm really grateful for that. That is so beautiful. Well, I think that's basically a wrap for us. And this has been more than more than I can ever imagine. You are a beautiful person inside, outside. Your, your, your contribution to what you were saying, I think will greatly support so many people out there struggling and so forth. And I guess the question always is, where can people find you? 
So I started an Instagram during this time period. So it's Susan Zinn Therapy. And I also have a website, susanzinntherapy.com. And so people can find out more about me or they can DM me if they have any questions. I have a couple of really fun projects coming out. I've got a book, uh, a collaboration book on epiphanies coming out this summer. And then I also have a book that I'm working on to how to heal a broken heart that's coming out soon too. So if you check me out on Instagram, there's a lot of information you can find what I'm up to and what I'm doing next too. Well, wow. And I'd love you to come back and talk about your book with us. Yeah, of course, of course. And I'm so grateful from my heart to yours. I'm so grateful for this time with you and everything that you're doing for your communities and people and raising awareness. And so I'm so grateful to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. We'll have a good rest of your day, early day, afternoon for us, and we'll speak soon. Thanks, Susie. Bye. Bye. Okay.